0: In pretty much every aspect of the practice we have to give ourselves time just as it takes some time for the mind to settle down when you come into the meditation hall and start meditating. wider sense it also takes time to learn how to practice Dhamma, to settle down in the lifestyle of a novice or a bhikkhu, and then to experience the results, the peace and the insight, it mm. takes time. We don't have to do anything particularly special or be anybody special we just take our own body and mind and our own character as it is and work with that and then giving it time and applying the practice you can Hopefully see over time that the potential for growth in the qualities of the Dhamma is there. All our teachers from the Buddha onwards down to the present day, they've all started with the same raw materials as us. They all have body and mind, they all have desires and attachments, greed, anger and delusion. They've all had experiences of suffering. None of them started out perfect or pure or wise. They all had to earn that through their own efforts. Jain was compassionate enough to, from time to time describe how he began his practice and developed his practice in the early years, spent his first three or four years in the monastery, st- typical study monastery, where nobody practiced meditation and the Vinaya was not particularly strict. He spent his time learning the basic suttas, Pali verses, Dhammapada, learning how to translate verses of Dhammapada and how to teach the basic Dhamma and the Vinaya uh, but as a subject rather than as something that one practices. He learned how to teach that to other monks. He was good at it. He was energetic. So he was loved as a teacher. And his own teachers wanted him to stay on and teach. But his own probably inner spiritual qualities, his own parami led him to want to leave to study monastery and go out on Tudong to really deepen his practice particularly to learn meditation from a skilled meditation master and he said when he first went out on Tudong he didn't know exactly what he was doing so him and his friends they took along everything you might say everything including the kitchen sink in those days the kitchen sink meant mortar and pestle which are very heavy carried it along that was the first thing they got rid of after a few kilometers it was so heavy they were worried they hadn't wouldn't have any chili paste with their meal he said he was learning to gradually renounce in the true way he let go of his attachment to comforts and the expectation of comfort just to give up more to Dhamma Vinaya and to the goodness of the practice and just trust and even be willing to let go of life itself if that's what was required. He wasn't sure about meditation techniques obviously he would learned from the suttas but not, hadn't practiced too much. So when he went down to central Thailand he headed for the monastery of Lumpur Pao the Lumpur Power had already passed away, but he stayed there anyway. This is a quiet forest monastery with, with hills around. And he was living in a grot, practicing meditation. But he had doubts how to practice meditation. He thought he'd try counting beads, because there were a lot of monkeys in Lopuri and... They used to knock the seeds down from the trees. They collected all these seeds up, strung them together to make a set of meditation beads and sat there counting them for about three days until he decided that wasn't suitable for his character. It wasn't a very good technique. So Then he took up buddho, he said in the beginning he didn't even trust Buddha fully yet perhaps he hadn't yet met the right teacher, like Ajahn Mun. so when he first encountered what he thought maybe was a ghost he dropped Buddha first and took up his own his previously practiced mantras and chants different verses that the uh, study monks would give out and keep supposed to have special magic powers and they would uh, recite them to protect themselves from danger like ghosts so one night when a ghost he felt there was some kind of strange presence putting pressure on his throat and on his chest as he was falling asleep his first instinct was to use his old gathas, the old verses Then he thought, "Mm, these are really external refuges, I want to dump them, it's time to dump them and just use the purity of my own Vinaya practice and then the mindfulness bring up, so he used buddho and made his mind firm with buddho as this strange dark presence was pressing down on him, making it hard to breathe and then it seemed to fade away and he got out of that experience. He said from then on, he never took up the different mantras and verses again. He just used Buddha and trusted in his own purity of his vinaya and his own pure intention to train the mind to let go of the defilements. He's obviously experimenting with different meditation techniques and different aspects of the practice and refining his awareness seeing the value of Vinaya, learning all the rules and trying to keep them and then learning the technique of meditation which he could really trust to develop mindfulness and give up to that meditation technique and it was then that <clears throat> because Lumpur Pao had passed away he went on to travelled up to see Lumpur Man to get further instruction he was only there for a few days but he said Ajahn Man's instruction partly confirmed what he already had been learning the last few years in his meditation practice he confirmed that you have to take the Vinaya as the foundation of the practice make your practice of the Vinaya very firm very sincere and not to kind of skimp or cheat on the Vinaya but to take it seriously and use it properly as a, as a vehicle for training the mind and then he talked about the mind itself and said really the whole of the Buddhist path is about training the mind, the jitta and looking after, guarding over the jitta and he said his explanation, just talking about how the jitta and then the objects of the jitta are two separate things. There's the mind and then the different mental conditions which affect it. But they're two different separate things. He said that was like all that he'd already learned in his own practice and then just hearing it explained so well by Ajahn Mun, everything coalesced together so his mind became very firm and bright listening to the Dhamma as Ajahn Mun talked about mind and then objects of mind or conditions of mind and just saying well these are different things in the end none of them are self but we must establish enough mindfulness so that we can separate between mind and conditions of mind, states of mind. Ajin Cha listening to the talks with Ajin Man became very peaceful, Pity and Sukha, because it just confirmed what he'd already been contemplating and put it so well. So I only spent a few days there. People were always doubting later. Why did you spend such little time with Ajahn Tzu? And he said, "Well, somebody with good eyes doesn't need to see for very long to see and learn what has to be learned. Even if some if somebody's hasn't got good eyesight, then they can stay for years with a teacher and still not learn anything." He said, "It was a few days." With good eyesight, staying in Venerable Mun's monastery was enough. He could see the core, the atmosphere, even though there were 70 monks in the monastery. Very peaceful, everything was tidy. There was no sound. Nobody would dare to make a sound, banging or clattering, talking in groups. If they had to do anything like chop wood, they would take it to the very edge of the forest, miles away from everyone else so they wouldn't disturb the other meditators and so on. You could see monks practicing meditation very diligently and then Anjan Mun's explanations were enough, could understand this is the path of practice. Keeping the Vinaya, looking after the mind, developing the insight to see the emptiness of mind and the objects of mind there's no self in this not to attach to conditions of mind different moods, mental states to see the body as not self contemplate the body all of this became very clear for him he said leaving Ajahn Man's monastery he had no more doubts about the practice obviously he still had Defilements, perhaps they're getting more subtler by then, but they're still there. It's not as if he was fully enlightened and with the end of his practice, but he understood, he had right view established, how to practice, how to contemplate suffering, its origins, the path that leads to the end of the suffering, to know that, what it is. It's about establishing mindfulness, looking after the mind and contemplating separating between mind and conditions of mind. So he'd used that same understanding and then carried on on his Tudong. So then later he had his experiences that he related about fear, particularly in staying in the charnel ground for the first time, tremendous fear so much fear he could hardly physically move he's so petrified when they brought a corpse into the charnel ground just the fear of ghosts even just staying in a grot his bowl became his best friend and the mosquito net like, like he said like the walls of a fortress anything that would help separate between him and the object of his fear or perceived object of fear a ghost or a dead corpse but he was using the technique that Ajahn Man had confirmed so he just took refuge in his own Vinaya training taking refuge in his intention to keep the Vinaya purely, pra- practice properly and then in Bhutto and then insight, to recognize even the most intense fear that paralyzes the body, overwhelms the mind, is still an object, a mental condition, it's not self. It's not to be grasped at as self or identified as self, but just seen as a condition that arises and ultimately ceases. But to do that, he had to have tremendous patient endurance go through a, you know, particularly one night he said of great fear where he was petrified to move but probably there are other nights as well learning to establish mindfulness even with the most deeply ingrained defilements you know, the very fear of life itself so, or fear of death attachment to life So later on he could say, when he taught the monks later at Wapapong, he said he had to put his very life at stake to bring you the Dhamma that he taught. So he put his life at stake with malaria and disease and the risk of wild animals and the fear that he'd faced up to and let go of. But all of it using the same kinds of technique. Firm practice of Vinaya and then firm mindfulness and then contemplating, developing insight. Well, you can see, sort of weaving his different talks together, this is over many years. It's not like he had every, all the insights in one go. He had to go through different experiences to learn what is the path, what is not. Same with last. He said when he first left on Tudong. He still had plenty of attraction for females. He still had last He knew he did, and he it would bring up doubts in his mind. He can remember one night he was contemplating, thinking he had never been married. He never had a, a wife, and then he thought of the Buddha. Even the Buddha had been married before he went into the forest. He even had a son so I think his own kilesas were making him think wrongly he thinks think mm, maybe he's trying to do something too extreme even more extreme than the Buddha he's never had a family now he's off going into the forest to meditate perhaps he's got it wrong perhaps he should go back experience a bit of the world first learn a bit about the world and then come back into the meditative lifestyle And then as he was thinking, his own wisdom came back and told him off and said, well this Buddha, meaning himself, well this Buddha is never going to get out of the mud. Go back and you have a wife and kid, you just get stuck in the mud and that's it. This Buddha will be a bit different from the last Buddha. So he just had to keep reminding himself that that's not the path, that's the way of sensuality, going back to the world. Did his mind settle down? He still had subtle lust and attachment, but at least the basic idea of going back to the world, he'd set that aside from his mind. Then when he was, I think it was his eighth panzer, because he was still seeing the attachment to sensuality, to lust, the physical form of a woman, that pantsa he was so fed up with his own attachment he determined for three months not to look at a woman even though going on arms round there'd be opportunity to see the village women particularly the young ones he just wouldn't lift his head up he wouldn't talk to them wouldn't look at them then at the end of the pantsa he just wanted to see what it's like so after three months he took a look at the first young woman he met on arms round and he said he, all, he was so shaken by the experience, his feet went all wobbly and jelly-like, he almost fell over, just the rush, surge of interest and the sort of lustful energy coming back up. So he was a bit disheartened and realize one can't practice just through restraint alone. One has to use sila, samadhi and panya to cut off defilements. But at the same time, we shouldn't look down on him and say, hmm, that practice was a waste of time. On the one hand, it might not—it might have shown him it's not the full path to freeing himself from defilement. On the other hand, it's showing his tremendous Restraint and ability to train himself not to look at a woman for three months is not an easy thing. So it's still part of the path, but it just needed to be incorporated with other aspects of the path, the mindfulness and the wisdom, the investigation of the unattractiveness of the body. So then he pursued that practice and he said, you have to practice until you can see all the other monks on arms round us, skeletons or corpses and just become so familiar with that perception that it becomes the most clear thing in the mind to help eradicate, push out the obsession with the attractiveness of the human body and particularly the female form for a man or the male form for a woman. So you can see over many years Ajahn Chah was training himself working with defilements pushing himself the word he used and other teachers use is Toramam which means like to frustrate the Kilesas so this is how you have to deal with them you establish mindfulness and you have to frustrate them the mindfulness helps us first of all to see a Kilesa actually see a Kilesa at work be aware of it greed anger delusion in different forms and the wisdom see with the mindfulness the wisdom comes in to see what needs to be done and maybe it has to be frustrated so we have to learn how to say no to our own thoughts and moods no to our own desires sometimes in the way we want to speak or act and this is often a private kind of practice that we're learning for ourselves sometimes the vinaya does it for us in some areas sometimes a teacher does it for us but in the end we have to learn how to do it for ourselves learn how to be patient enough and willing enough to keep bringing out mindfulness and then frustrating the Kalesas. and sometimes we put ourselves in positions where our fr- Kalesas are frustrated so we often we practice staying up late we don't sleep when we want to sleep or we meditate when we would rather chat or do other things we sometimes go without things we want or we make ourselves do things that we don't want to do and so on all of this takes some effort and some mindfulness and then also wisdom to do it properly so you're actually seeing defilements and frustrating them rather than the opposite which you might say is the way of the world which is always to just try and indulge defilement as much as possible so that we feel better temporarily we feel like we've got something we're getting what we want so we feel happy but actually because we're following defilement we're making it worse we're stirring it up making it stronger and then without realising it turns around and causes us even more suffering. So human beings normally, because they're following defilement, they keep coming back to discontent, despair, suffering of different kinds. Whereas the suffering of a bhikkhu is temporary. We are overcoming defilement through frustrating them, becoming mindful of them wisely, seeing them for what they are and then letting them go in the long run we actually come to peace it's not a a frustration or a a suffering without without end or without purpose but it does mean we have to practice patience while we're doing it so we have to learn this we have to learn how to not give in to our defilements how to counter them sometimes go against them Sometimes how to just restrain them, ignore them. Might be just voices in the mind, just thoughts which we learn just to ignore. We watch them and ignore them, let them go. Sometimes we have to be much more forceful and really teach ourselves and bring out the opposite. Bring out perceptions of impermanence when we're stuck on permanence perceptions of a super when we're stuck on perceptions of beauty and pleasure. See the dukkha of things where we're normally looking for the sukha of things. Seeing things as not self when we're normally taking them as self. And that takes effort and patient effort. You can see normally with Ajahn Chah in that period, say the first 15 years of his bhikkhu life before he settled down in Wapapong, he was using patient endurance on himself. But at the same time, he always had other bhikkhus with him. He was never very rarely on his own. He always had monks, novices, pakaus with him, traveling around or staying in a monastery for a, a year or so. But because he was really pushing himself, he was really practicing patience and not giving in to his defilements, then some of them with him would stick with him and grow in their practice. He'd bring out the best in them. Others, they just couldn't. Couldn't stay with him. It's not that he sent them away or got angry with They just couldn't hack it. you see that was the sort of attitude he had he wasn't really particularly critical or angry about the monks around him he generally was caring for them but at the same time he wouldn't go soft on them and just follow their desires it was basically they had to follow him in the practice he was doing or else they went off on their own, own way and that was fine he didn't separate with other bhikkhus out of anger it was simply if they couldn't keep up with him you might say similarly he moved around a lot so he didn't let himself get attached to any particular group of lay people or lay person who could start to become a burden on his mind and his teachers warned him because he was he obviously had a lot of compassion and wisdom from an early age and he could teach, he was very inspiring both to sangha and to laity. So there were lay people who wanted to sort of cling on to him, invite him to stay in one place, but he could see that's also a danger, isn't it? Again, it brings with it comforts, desires for having lay people... Bring you things, the things you want, the food, the requisites you want, the comforts you want, and so on. You could see, well, that would just become supporting the Kalesas against. So he's very strict with himself. He wouldn't let himself become too attached to the laity or the laity become too attached to him. Simply to frustrate the desire for comfort, intimacy, warmth in that sense, the sort of worldly sense. None of this was easy to do. He, you know, he practiced to the point where his own robes were literally falling off him with holes. he patched them so much he couldn't patch them anymore because the cloth had gone to that state where it just doesn't hold it, have any strength left. The threads of the cloth, the fibre of the cloth has worn out. So his own robes were tearing on him all the time even to the point where it brought him to tears sometimes thinking how much he had to go through just to let go of attachment he said sometimes walking binda so keen to get some nice food or something and the mind the kalesa is screaming out "I want to say I need some nice food but not giving in to them and so not saying anything to anybody just learning to be patient and equanimous whatever they offer they offer they don't offer never mind to the point where the kalesas go quiet you know, frustrating them to that point where they just quieten down so you use that simile like a, a cat if you ever had a cat you know, maybe a stray cat comes around to your house you start feeding it it will keep coming as long as you feed it it will keep coming but if you stop feeding it After a few days, it will just disappear. Kelesas are like that. If you really don't give in to them, you don't follow them, you don't give them what they want, well, they go quiet. The mind does go quiet. Then you start to feel a little bit more stronger in your practice, more control, So You get confidence to keep doing that and doing it again, even if the Kelesas come back. At least you've got some sense that you know what you have to do to deal with them you can go on the results of the practice if the mind goes quiet peaceful there's there's no no doubting that no argument with that that's what we're looking for in the practice and this is peaceful from wisdom not giving intercalations and seeing them as not self it's not just the piece of samadhi although that's very nourishing for the mind He's always telling the monks it's not just a piece of samadhi we're after we also have to contemplate keep recognizing a kilesa as a kilesa, you might say that's your first task just to know greed as greed lust as lust anger as anger delusion in all its forms as delusion doubt as doubt and so on be able to recognize the kalesa first, even if you can't let go of it, at least you can recognize it for what it is. And recognize it as the source of suffering, so you have the right view established, even when it's very powerful, and it keeps overwhelming the mind over and over again. As long as you keep re-establishing right view, then little by little you're working towards the solution, how to... Let go of it. You're seeing a kalesa as just a source of suffering, leading to more agitation, despair, disappointment, ultimately to more rebirth. Once you have right view established, then there's a chance to actually keep bringing up some insight to let go of them, frustrate them, let go of them, counter them with different reflections on the Dhamma. Really, our whole life is based around this practice. and sila samadhi panya, and dhamma vinaya, what we're doing as bhikkhus, living in the forest, just every day you live in the forest if you have desires to travel or visit family or friends, go places, see things, then already you're practicing this practice, for frustrating those particular kalesas even just living in the forest is this, this is what we call toraman kile. living with other people who are not your family or relatives or friends already that brings up kilesas that you have to let go of you don't choose the people who live in the monastery you accept and they're just fellow practitioners on the level of Dhamma Vinaya give them that respect so you don't choose who you like who you don't like you know, one who's practicing the Dhamma frustrates preferences so you accept everyone for what they are try and see the good in everyone we're all here practicing Dhamma Vinaya so naturally it brings out a sense of harmony or community and we practice sense restraint, restraining kilesa to the, the one that wants to possess things and accumulate things that's always seeking comfort and pleasure and we're frustrating that and after a while it will go quiet so if you live in the forest even it might not even always be the same forest but different forests over many many years keeping the vinaya then plenty of kilesas will drop away it, it's quite possible that all of us can become very content living this lifestyle if we give it long enough and keep practicing the many desires that we once had will no longer bother us if you keep ignoring them seeing them letting them go the mind can change what its expectations are what it wants from life changes it starts to incline towards that which is more peaceful towards insight and understanding rather than just accumulating more experiences more pleasure, more things more stuff Venerable Ajahn Chah has given us this style of practice or way of practice but not based on just theories or the books he himself practiced in this way and he told us how he practiced and what what happened and we can see he didn't find it easy all the time he also had to learn how to be patient he also shed a few tears experienced pain difficulty all the different things we experience he's already experienced it's not like he was some kind of special super being from day one he was a human being just like us but he did have the faith and the commitment to keep on practicing not give up and he learned through that later on he shared what he had to what he had learned he shared that with others and he said even in teaching others perhaps he gained most wisdom through doing that So this is our good fortune that we have this time, this opportunity to practice. We should take it while we have good health, we have youth, we have health on our side. We should take our chance, take our opportunity and keep practicing. So I'll leave you with these words of encouragement tonight.